Thank you for tuning in to today's audio message. Here at Temple Baptist Church, we are a church on a mission, connecting people to Jesus and to one another. Faith works when your trust in God leads to obedience to God. When your faith is not just words, but there's action. It works when your claims are backed by evidence. It's when what you say is who you are. That's when faith works. It works when what you believe defines how you live. It works when people see the impact of Christ in your life. That's faith at work. Faith works when the truth in your head goes to your hands and to your feet. When it's no longer theory, but it's reality. That's when faith works. When it goes from lending an ear to actually lending a hand. When you don't just take notes, you take action. That's when faith works. It works when your faith destroys your doubts. It works when you're ready to give up, but you press on. It works when in the face of devastation, you flourish. It works when you feel like you are going through hell, but you keep your eyes on the hope that is set before you. Faith works. It works when your wealth is found in Christ and not your wallet. When you know your treasures are in heaven, that's when faith works. It works when you persevere in the midst of suffering. When you keep moving on, though you want to give up. That's when faith works. When your wealth is a conduit to God's blessing. It works when you remain patient no matter the circumstances. It works when you stand firm and who God is. Faith, it works. It works when your anxiety leads you to pray, when your needs drive you to your knees. That's when faith works. When how you live affects how you pray, when your pursuit of righteousness impacts your pursuit of God, that's when faith works. But someone will say, I have faith. You have works. Show me your faith without your works. And I will show you my faith by my works. This is the message of James. Let's pray. The Father this morning, what a privilege it is for us to gather together as a large group of believers here this morning. And Lord, this little book has been addressed to us, the church, followers of Jesus, how our lives ought to be lived out. And so this morning, Lord, we pray that even in these few moments, we pray that these words would reach deep down in the hearts and minds and souls 
of each one of us here this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, believe it or not, this is week nine of our series that we have called Every Day. We're, we're making our way through this book of James. We're walking slowly through the book of James. Uh, such a small little book, and yet it's so powerful. I mean, only five chapters, 108 verses, enough TNT to blow your minds and to turn your whole world upside down. And I think if we're completely honest with ourselves, we haven't liked everything that James has talked about. I think there's been sometimes we felt like maybe he was meddling a little too close uh, to home. And James says, you know, it starts, our faith starts by believing, but it cannot end there. And this book, is, it's so practical, yet it's radical, and yet in the same time, it's so relevant for us living it in 2018. And this book is not about just getting by. <laughs> no, no, no. It's about excelling. James is all about development. He's all about spiritual maturity. This book is all about reality and our faith. And I know we haven't looked at any deep theological issues that surround the cross, but what we have looked at is what happens when a life intersects with the cross. When we have an encounter with Jesus, the one who died for our sins, what happens? Then what? And that's what James has been addressing. And we've tried our best over the last couple of weeks to really discover what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus, not just a fan of Jesus. And, and some of the things that James has addressed, honestly, has been really tough to wrestle through. Uh, James is the kind of writer, he's down to earth, he's easy to understand, you don't need a dictionary. In my small group this week, we all agreed we wish it wasn't so easy to understand. We wish it was more complicated, then we wouldn't be held responsible for the stuff that we don't know. But it's very easy to understand when you read through this book. And one of the things that we discover, of course, is that James is the half-brother of Jesus. He doesn't get his information third and fourth hand. He lived under the same roof as Jesus. And here's Jesus, growing up on the same roof. He watched his older brother do miraculous things. He, he watched him confuse the wise. He watched him say things and do things he had never seen before. And yet the Bible says he wasn't a believer. In fact, he was a skeptic. And it wasn't until Jesus died and rose again that all of a sudden James was sold out for Jesus Christ. And James writes this book to, to just Christians who are on the run. They have scattered all over the Mediterranean because of persecution. And, and it's like, it's all-time all high. People are actually going into the homes of Christians, dragging them out of their home, and they're either putting them in prison or killing them. And so that's why, that's why Christians are on the run, uh, running uh, for their lives. These are not easy days. For the church. And so you can only imagine why they're asking these questions. Where's God? Where's God in all this stuff that's happening? God, why have you abandoned me? It seems like you've left me on my own. It seems as though my life was better before I came to know you. And these are the questions that are being asked. God, did you forget me? Have you lost control? And what's very interesting, it's kind of the same questions that we ask, isn't it? You know, when certain events come in our life that seem so overwhelming, we're, we're quick to say, God, where are you? Like, what, what's happened? I thought you were in control. I thought my life was supposed to be a little easier than this now that I'm a follower of Jesus. And then James says this really weird, I mean, you're almost tempted to say, James, you're, you're a weirdo for saying this. He says, count it joy. Count it a joy. When you face uh, multiple trials in your life. And honestly, 
it does seem a little weird when you say that. I mean, really, Donald, you're, you're, you're telling me I'm supposed to count all joy when I'm, I'm facing a pending divorce in my life? Really? Count that a joy, eh? Uh, I, I have surgery next week, Donald, and I don't even know what the outcome is, and you're telling me to have joy. Uh, my house is being foreclosed on because I've lost, I have, have no job for the last eight months. Uh, oh, count it all joy. Really, Donald, when my name is being slandered? Hey, we're suffering. We're struggling with infertility. You're telling me to count that all joy? Come on, Donald. Get real. James, get real. I don't know what kind of world you're living in, Donald, but that's not the real world. And I think James is trying to tell us not that the circumstances are joyful, but he's saying that you can actually know that this experience is actually molding you and shaping you to be somebody that you would never have been without the trial in your life. I realize that some of the trials are really ugly. They stink. They hurt. And James said, but hey, listen, you can know. You can know God's working, actually, behind the scenes of your life. And even when we're going through some of those tough challenges in our life, don't you know that the devil comes right along and tries to offer us things that will dull the pain with just the promise of a little pleasure. And sometimes what happens, we have this temptation dangling out in front of us and we're right on the edge of the cliff and boy, sometimes we get stung along the way because we fall for the temptation. I don't think it's too strong to say that the book of James is all about practical atheism. See, atheism says there is no God. Practical atheism says, oh, no, no, I believe in God. I just live like he doesn't exist. That's practical atheism. And James breaks it down for us. He's just saying you can't just be a hearer only. You've got to be a doer as well. See, wait a minute. too many Christians just sit back and audit. Sit back, you know, chill. Chill out. And it's not just about listening. The deal is application. And when you stop becoming just a hearer and you become a doer, I believe that's when you really begin to sense the power of God in your life. I'm in no way suggesting that your life will be perfect. No, it won't. Not at all. But there is this underlying question that we have been asking to this book of James. It's a question about Christianity. Does it really make a difference in my daily life, in my everyday life, to be in a relationship with Jesus Christ? Can I actually have faith and there be no change in my life? Are changes are inevitable, or are they optional? Can I say I have faith in Jesus Christ and go on my merry way and pretend like nothing's ever changed or ever happened in my life? That's the question. Is it possible to have an encounter with Jesus, the one who actually did die on the cross, who was buried, who rose again, who is sitting on the right hand of the Father? Can you know all that, believe all that, and not make a difference in your life? That's what James is asking. James actually says, it's kind of a joke to think that you can have some kind of vibrant faith and yet you don't do anything with it. James says, actually, you deceive yourself to think that faith is good when it lacks action. James is a straight shooter, straight talker. And there is no greater proclamation of our faith than how we live our life every day. And so once again, James is just trying to attack any areas, any glimpses 
of phoniness in our life. And he's challenging us to make it real, to make it genuine, to let it out. And James is simply saying, great, you know Jesus, but where, where's the evidence? Where's the hard facts to prove that you're a follower of Jesus? And this is a major concern of James for the entire book. I asked this question last week. Do we live as though God is in the room? Or do we live as though he isn't really paying much attention at all? That's the question. See, James is all about not sitting on the fence. James is presenting the case for not straddling uh, the spiritual lines. And James makes it very clear that there are marks, there actually are marks of a genuine Christian. James clearly tells us that authentic Christianity looks very, very different than when we just simply use the word, I am a Christian. Being a follower of Jesus means actions. You don't just simply walk around listening and talking all about some good stuff and not put it into practice. James says, what good is that? What good is that? It's true that we are saved by faith or we're saved through faith by grace alone. But remember, faith is never alone. And if you remember last week, I said, God wants to take us from here to here. And sometimes the journey from here to there is challenging, especially when you're, you're in the land of in-between. You've left where you once were. You're headed over here. You know God's doing something. He's shaping you and molding you. And this place, this, this land of in-between is a great um, uh, space to be for growth, but it's also a great place for complaining. It's a great place to have a meltdown when you find yourself in the mess. It's fertile ground for transformation, but sometimes we do not like that what God is doing. To bring us over there, we left here, and we just, we haven't got there yet. And all of a sudden, it looks a lot better back there. And James is, is addressing this. In this land of in-between, though, is when our character is built. We know we can't stay there. But we haven't arrived there yet. And it isn't about growing old in the Lord. It's all about growing up in the Lord. Well, I think we're ready to jump into the next part of James. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, turn to James chapter 4. By the way, if you come here uh, regularly and you don't own a Bible, I want to encourage you to have a Bible. That's the one of the things that are characteristic of our church. We always look at the Bible every week to find out what, the, what God's Word has to say. So if you don't have a Bible, we'll give you a Bible today before you leave here. Or if you have some kind of electronic device as well, you can turn to James chapter 4. James chapter 4. And we're just going to read the last part. Sorry, verse 13, James chapter 4. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go to this or that city, and we'll spend a year there, we'll carry on business, and we'll make money. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What, what is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast and you brag and all such boasting 
is evil. Anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, to him it is sin. Mr. Jones wasn't feeling very well, so he made an appointment to go see the doctor. They have some tests run. He just wasn't feeling good. And so he got a phone call from the doctor shortly afterwards. The doctor said, I need for you to come in and see me. The doctor said to Mr. Jones, Mr. Jones, I have some, I have some bad news for you. And I have worse news. What do you want to hear first? Mr. Jones was taken back a little bit, and he says, well, I, I guess I'll, um, I'll hear the bad news first. He said, the doctor said, the bad news is that you only have 24 hours to live. Mr. Jones like, wow, what? He's flabbergasted. He's going crazy. He's jumping up and down. What do you mean I only have 24 hours to live? How can I get all my affairs in order? Only 24 hours to live? This is crazy. This is ridiculous. How could there be any news that's worse than only having 24 hours to live? The doctor said, well, the worst news is that I was supposed to call you yesterday. But I forgot. Kind of humorous little story, but there are some important lessons in it. We don't have the promise of tomorrow. Not one of us. One day, all of us will check out. Uh, Ralph Stockman once said, Time is the deposit each one has in the bank of God, and no one knows the balance. James says that life can be gone just like that. You know, you blow those bubbles, and they're so beautiful in the air, and then they, just, they pop, they're gone. And James is saying that's kind of what life is like. It's here, it looks so good, and then it's gone. We just don't know uh, the numbers of our days. Now, I, I don't want to depress anybody here, but no one is guaranteed tomorrow. Not one of us. And I know we don't like to think about that kind of stuff. I, I was thinking even this week in the news, you probably heard the story of Charles Wesco. In 2015, Charles and Stephanie took a mission trip to Cameroon, Africa, and so moved by God that they came back from, to America. They sold everything. They sold their home. They sold all of their possessions. And just a couple of weeks ago, they packed it all up, went to Africa, and two days ago, did you read that in the news? And he gets shot in the head and dies. You're thinking, look, Lord, there's not even that many people who are willing to give it all up to go to Africa. And there he arrives, I'm sure, with the plans with he and his wife and all of their children to share the love of Jesus. And 12 days later, he's gone. Just kind of reminds me how quick life can be. Even when you're sold out for Jesus. Because sometimes you, you think, well, you know, I, I'm living for Christ. Everything's going well. He's, he's, he's got a longevity plan for me. I think of my father as well. You know, and my family, longevity runs in the family. Everybody lives to be at least, I don't know, 85, 90. My grandfather's 95, still, you know, chugging along, doing great. And so when my father went over to Norway to cover the Winter Olympics and he caught a parasite that killed him like that, we're like, What? It just reminds me, life is so fragile, and it's gone so quick, but we live as though sometimes we have another 20 years. You know, even this summer, as at my birthday, I was just kind of contemplating once again, I have less years ahead of me, more years behind me. 
and I'm wrestling, what am I going to do with the rest of my life? What's the mode? What, what, what are the plans that I am making? And for the most part, aren't we, we're, we're people who plan. We're planners. People are constantly planning ahead. We're making plans for the future. We have career plans. We have estate plans. We have pension plans. We have vacation plans. We have marriage plans. We have funeral plans. We devise educational plans. We have business plans. We have retirement plans. We create travel plans, workout plans, lesson plans. We have saving plans, game plans, diet plans. We are people who love the plan. Every university makes plans to expand. Uh, churches make plans for growth. Every politician makes plans for re-election. Businesses are always making plans to increase revenue. The military making plans for deployment and reassignment. The government makes plans on how to avoid disasters in the future. And all of you undoubtedly are maybe already starting to make plans for Christmas just a few months away. We have a propensity to be a people who plan. And Proverbs 16.9 says, the mind of man plans his ways. Proverbs 19.21, many plans are in a man's heart. Esau, in Genesis chapter 27, verse 2, Esau planned to kill his brother, Jacob. Sanballat planned to harm Nehemiah. Saul planned the Philistines would kill David. Joseph planned to send Mary away secretly so as not to disgrace her publicly. Paul made plans to visit Rome. And there's nothing wrong with making plans, per se. Nothing wrong with that at all. The book of Acts says that Jesus was crucified at the hands of godless men by the predetermined plan of God. The prophet Isaiah said, The Lord of hosts has planned, and who can frustrate it? And in this passage that we're, we just read here this morning from James, James is talking about people who make plans to go here, to go such a uh, place, engage in business. That's the illustration he gives. To go and engage in business and make profit. And James is not suggesting that making plans is bad, but what he is saying, that when you make plans without taking God's will into account, that's where James says, hey, you need to listen up. In fact, James says, when you make plans without ever including God in it, we tend to be a little boastful, a little arrogant. And just early in that chapter, James had talked about pride. And once again, he's bringing up that whole subject of pride that we, we plan so often as though God doesn't even exist by making our plans as though we're going to be successful on our own. And, and although the uh, the example that James gives about a businessman, it's so applicable to our lives today. Because look what he says. He says, come now. Come now. And uh, we say the same thing. Come now and see what I'm going to do. Come now, you who say that I'm going to quit my job and find a better one. Come now, you who say, I'm going to attend Western or Fanshawe or Lambton College after I graduate from high school. Come now, you who will say, I'm 55 years of age and I am now going to retire and live six months in Florida. Come now, you who say, I'm going to get married and I'll have three children. Come now, and you who say, I'm going to sell my home and travel the world. Come now, you who say, I will lose 50 pounds in the next year. 
come now, you who say, I will do such and such and this and that. And James says, you have no idea what tomorrow holds. You can't guarantee what your life will be like tomorrow. So how can you be so sure that your plans are going to work out? The, the words, come, come now, is the equivalent of saying, you know, listen up, uh, uh, pay attention. It almost indicates a disapproval, much like we do when we use the phrase, oh, come on, come on. What James is disapproving of is, is again, it's not, it's not about making plans per se, but it's the kind of practical atheism that makes these plans as though God doesn't really exist. That's what James is trying to address here. That we would make extensive plans into the future without ever acknowledging that God's plans might not be the same as our plans. My, my grandmother, my dad's mom, always, I mean always, would say, she always used the phrase, if the Lord wills. And I used to live there in the summertime, and she'd say, on every Thursday, well, we're going to go upriver. My grandparents lived on a little island, and so going upriver meant going to the grocery store. It was a narrow way. It was the closest grocery store. Well, we're going to go upriver tomorrow, Lord willing. We're planning to go to Florida in February, Lord willing. Hey, we're planning to go up to your folks' house, Lord willing. I think... Part of me wondered, was she just being very conscientious to let me know, or let her grandson know, that my plans are only as good as what God allows. Because the best of plans are just plans of best. Did we ever make plans? Do you make plans? Do I make plans? I've been thinking about this. Without ever acknowledging God's sovereignty over our lives. And do we ever think that maybe his plans and our plans may look a little bit different? Because so many of our plans succeed, we start taking it for granted that our success is because of us. We can easily presume, presume on God's goodness by assuming that our next set of plans will be successful. Or we can forget God altogether and credit past and future successes to ourselves. We forget that the success of any plan, being great or small, is due to God's sovereignty and kindness. Proverbs 27.1 says, Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring forth. Isn't that really true? Isn't that true? Not one of us knows what tomorrow will hold. For that matter, not only tomorrow, we don't even know what tonight's going to hold. In fact, really, none of us know what the next hour holds for us. Because we're not God. We're not like God that, w that we know the future. But we do know who holds the future. That makes a big difference. You may be nervous about the future. You may be nervous about what's going to happen down the road. But as a follower of Jesus, you can take great confidence that the one who holds your future, it's in his hands. And I understand that we don't like it when we have to put our lives in someone else's hands. From our point of view, that seems so uncertain, undefined. We don't know what tomorrow is going to hold, and it seems foolish to pretend that we do. And here in James, the merchants forget that life is short. They thought that life was going to be secure, it was going to be established, it was going to be enduring. They just assumed 
that they would always be around to accomplish their plans, to fulfill their dreams, to see their hopes realized. And James says, boy, what is your life? It's a vapor. It's gone. In fact, most of us even who, you know, you find yourself, you're maybe your 70s or 80s, and I have some are even in your 90s, and even 90 years can go by like that. You look back, you go, where did the 50 years go? And where did the 70 years go? Even that seems so quick. So you can imagine when life is cut a lot shorter than what we planned, how fragile it is. No one likes the thought of being in someone else's hands. I just said that. No one likes the thought of someone else being in control. I mean, you know, sometimes we feel that at work. Like, you feel like your, your boss holds all the chips in his hands, whether you're going to have a future of that company or not. You know, you know maybe you, you find like you're going through a divorce and you feel like you know, the, 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 the other spouse has all the chips. They're making all the decisions. You feel like, oh my goodness, I'm, I'm left to their demise. So James says we're to pray. Pray, pray. Asking that is what we mostly do in prayer, isn't it? Lots of times when we pray, we ask. And I believe that when we do ask, I really think it is, is an acknowledgement, really, that we are totally dependent upon God. And our asking is a daily reminder that we need God. We do need God. The two reasons why it is always wrong to leave God of, out of any plans that we make is because we do not know what our life will be like tomorrow. We can't be sure what's going to happen tomorrow. Forget about next year or the year after. And the second reason that James says for, not, for letting God out of your plans is you've got to realize life is so short. It's short. And it's fragile. I'm not trying to be uh, I'm not trying to depress you, but life is just, it just goes so quick. Like, where'd it go? What happened? And when we think about it, the issue that James is trying to address here, I think ultimately is who is in control? Who is in control? God or man? You know, we as a follower of Jesus would say, oh, God's in control. Yeah, he's in charge. And I think sometimes intellectually we say that. But that's where the practical atheism sometimes comes in for a follower of Jesus. We believe it, but we don't live that way as though God really does exist. Who has the final word? God or man? And so I guess, really, as we're getting ready to wrap up here in the next couple of minutes, my question to you is, who's in control of your life? Who is in control of your life? For some of you, if you're honest, you can't, you, you can't take your hands off the steering wheel of your life. You're gripped on so hard. And I feel like sometimes, I, this has happened with me, where I feel like God's had to pry my fingers off of that steering wheel because I just want to be in control. When really it would be so much easier if I just back, jumped in the back seat and let him take control of my life. I actually don't think you can truly understand the joy that actually comes from living for Jesus unless you surrender control. 
And for some of us, that's harder than others. Because some of us are control, we don't even call ourselves control freaks. Right? We, we just like to be in control. And so I'm just asking, who's in control of your life this morning? And, and for those who are here this morning who are still wrestling with this whole idea of coming to Jesus and asking him to forgive you of your sins and take control, why would you let another day go by not knowing what tomorrow holds? I actually don't know. I, personally, I, I really don't even understand how someone could actually leave through those doors and be so uncertain about tomorrow where they would spend their eternity. I, I just don't know why you would juggle that or gamble with that. You could actually settle that today if you have found yourself to be here just kind of investigating who Jesus is. Today we're told that actually if we would surrender our lives, if we would invite Jesus to forgive us of our sins, to invite him to be a part of our life, he does. It, it, it does. Talk about how, how quick um, life can be over. That's how quick your life can be radically changed. When you invite Jesus Christ to be part of your life, who's in control? Really, be honest with yourself. Who's in control of your life? Let's pray. Uh, Father, uh, I know our time has been quick. It's been... But God, ultimately there is a question that we have to wrestle with. And that is who's in control. And God, I, I think I've been guilty at times with this whole practical atheism. Oh yes, we're so quick to say, yeah, I believe. I believe in God. And yeah, on the flip side, we're so quick to, to live as though he doesn't exist. And so this morning, Lord, in these just few moments, I, I pray, God, that you would just do some business with us. And for those who, for those who are here this morning and they actually do not know where they would spend eternity if tomorrow doesn't come for them. I pray, God, that they would settle that issue today. And then, Lord, for the, for the follower of Jesus who has been wrestling with this whole issue of control, I pray, God, that today they would just surrender it all to you because ultimately you are in charge. And it gets so tiring to always feel like you have to be in control. And so, Lord, help us to be able to surrender our lives to you in all that we do. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning, we're just going to take a few moments to slow some things down and just reflect. Next Sunday, we all know as Canadians, for our American friends who may be watching, for us, it's a very special day. It's Remembrance Day. We just slow down and we remember all the sacrifices that have been made for us. Men and women, young lives, old lives, who literally laid down their life so we can enjoy what we have in Canada. Let me tell you, we are a blessed, a blessed nation. I know sometimes we can, I can get caught up with all that's happening in our country, but we are a blessed nation. In fact, stats say that if you live in a country like ours, you live like a king and a queen compared to the rest of the world because of what someone fought for us. 
Well, there's no difference when we take communion. We, we just want to remember. We want to remember what Jesus has done for us. And we celebrate this at least once a month just to focus us again. Oh, that's right. Thank you, Lord. Thank you so much for what you've done for me. My life has been radically changed because of Christ. Now, maybe you're here this morning, and if you were honest, you would say, I, I just don't know. I don't know I'm a follower of Jesus. In fact, I, I'm pretty sure I'm not a follower of Jesus. I'm still investigating. Well, I would, I would encourage you, just, just let that tray go by. Because this is really for a believer who really, who really believes that Jesus died. He shed his blood so that we could be free, that our sins could be forgiven. And so I'm going to invite the ushers, if you will, and our elders and deacons, if you just begin to serve the elements. And I'll be back and we'll share it together. study history and you know the story behind the story um, my grandfather uh, actually was killed uh, in the war sniper two days before the war was over took him out and then you you read it you know what, what were the what happened around the story and I find it quite fascinating 
But we have the story. We have the story. We know, of course, history talks about that a man named Jesus died on the cross. But we actually know what happened leading right up to that moment. It's been recorded for us. 2,000 years later, we have it in front of us. And so let me read it to you again. The Apostle Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also pass on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night, you understand, the night that he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant. It's the new way. In my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Those are the words of Jesus. When we do this, every time we get, we make a proclamation that because of what Jesus has done for us, our lives are so different. Been radically changed because of this new covenant that Jesus made for us. It wasn't always like this. It wasn't. And then when Jesus died, it changed everything. And so Jesus is sharing these words to those who are up in the upper room as disciples and followers of his. Things are going to be different now. And every time you have the opportunity to do this, you are making a proclamation about the death of Christ. But you are also proclaiming he's coming back. And what a day that's going to be when he returns. Thanks for tuning in this morning. If God has used this ministry to bless you in any way, I encourage you to join us live Sunday mornings at 1030. For address, directions, and any more information, you can check us out online at templebaptist.com. God bless and have a great week. Shine like the sun.